actually people with higher IQs tend to be subject, more subject to certain biases than people with more on, on what we would say are the average in terms of IQs. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me again for this edition of the Conversations podcast. In this episode, I am joined by Tony Ewing. Tony is a Princeton-trained behavioral consultant, trainer, and motivational speaker. We discuss his expertise in risk management, behavioral economics, its impact in our everyday decisions, and how can we make better decisions as we understand some of the biases that we have within us. This conversation will help you understand what drives your decisions on a daily basis so you can enhance them and make healthier decisions for your future and for the long term. We had a couple of technical difficulties while recording the show, but I believe the conversation with Tony does triumph against the quality of the audio. It sometimes gets glitchy, but it's not always. But thank you for joining. I really do hope you enjoy the conversation and take something actionable for your daily lives. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Conversations podcast. In this edition, I am joined by the amazing Tony Ewing. I'm very excited to have you here. So thank you for joining me, Tony. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Alex. I was wondering if you could tell me how has your trajectory been unfolding up until today? What brought you interested in risk management, in leadership, in coaching and consulting? I had always had this fascination with behavioral economics. I'd always had this fascination with risk. Uh, but when I graduated from, from uh, the grad school, you, you could not get a job in, in behavioral economics. In fact, even though uh, one of my teachers was Daniel Kahneman, who eventually got a Nobel Prize for it, even at that time, you know, there, was, there were people like our department head would joke and say, well, you know, what are you going to go to some university in the middle of nowhere and you know, get a job? And they, so they, they sort of you know, would, would, would push us away from this idea of uh, dealing in, in behavioral economics. And my dissertation was on something called systemic risk because I graduated at a time when we had the Asian financial crisis. And during the Asian financial crisis, everybody was, was concerned about this spreading across the globe through mm -hmm. banks, banking systems. So uh, I, I uh, uh, completed my dissertation on this. And that was my real exposure to, to risk as a subject. Then, um, as I said, I started teaching on, on that subject and teaching in, in international finance. And I think now uh, what I've been doing is, is basically been working on building more the thought leadership side. You mentioned behavioral economics. And right now we're in a world where pretty much everything revolves around behavioral economics on how to nudge people towards a certain behavior, so to say, right? But there's people who are skeptical on this notion that behavioral economics is still in place. So talk to me more about how this industry, how this field of research influences our daily lives. Yeah. No, th thanks for that. Um, I, I think that behavioral economics is really the, the in, in, in a sense, the real economics. That is, it's It's the economics that we observe in, in how people do things. I mean, people go to the store, uh, they don't have a precise notion of why they will buy this item or that item for uh, a higher price or a lower price. They might buy what's attractive to them 
They might buy something because subconsciously they saw a commercial somewhere that said it, that associated it with, with a nice scene that they remember in their lives. Um, they like the packaging. They like uh, uh, lots of other things. It's positioning on the shelf, those kinds of things. And that's the way people behave on a normal basis. They, they select things. They select um, what they want to do. They select their careers. E- even me with my story about uh, getting into risk. I, I, you know, when I was an undergrad, I, I wanted to be like a, a black uh, Milton Friedman. You know, I thought I would go and get a Nobel Prize and debate people and, um, and, and, and tear into them about how, you know, the free market is, is you know, the best way of, of functioning and things like that. And then later, and I realized that was, a, that was a, a bias that I had from reading all these books by these, these Nobel laureates and, and digging into that and having, you know, a couple of of older economists as mentors, and and it it created a vision in my mind that wasn't exactly reality. So you know, it's it, I, I think in the same way our minds often we're, we're driven to to select items, to buy items, to sell items, to select people that we want to be with and spend time with on the basis of impressions, and those things are not always rational. In fact, I think as I said, most of the time I think they're not what we would call rational. Uh, and, and, you know, to just add one further point to that, I think what we've discovered that's, you know, sort of since I graduated and since, uh, the explosion in behavioral economics, uh, has been the role of emotion. I think, I think at the time when, when there was a lot of focus on behavioral economics and and still there's a lot of discussion on this, you know, confirmation and this kind of thing, we, we didn't put a lot of emphasis on what triggers a person to, to set aside what we think of as economic rationality and put in its place uh, a feeling, put in a, its place a decision based upon a feeling. And that now I think uh, some, of, some of the people that are researching this, some of the things I've found in, in my own activity with, with, with companies has been that, that a lot of this is emotion. It's emotional driven, the fear and, and concern and all these kinds of things, scarcity and all those things that we, we would have had a different outcome in terms of uh, people's behavior. It's really interesting that you mentioned how influencing one's decisions can surge rather than rationalizing the, the idea of, of choosing. It comes from rationalizing the emotion that one gets from a certain product, a certain idea. So I'm very interested in, in, in that aspect of, of life itself that before we thought that everything was through our rationality, right? We're rational beings. We, we have our certain preferences. We want to maximize our outcomes. We want to maximize our benefits. But yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, what it seems to me that we're trying to maximize the outcome out of a certain emotion. So that's very interesting. How yeah. do you think that certain companies or... You know, every time we go to a grocery store, grocery market, we choose our products or hover around Amazon. How do you think our emotions play on the role of, of choosing in life? Yeah, I, I, I think they, they play a pivotal role. And I, and, uh, I, I think what I should mention is, is we, we used to think, as you said, we used to think that, that when they were discovering or, or I, I should really say rediscovering these cognitive biases because in all actual fact the the ancient greeks discussed this idea um the it's it's something that's a pervasive idea in 
2,000 years, they've have, have, has been discussed among monks. This idea that emotions can drive uh, behavior that's that's uh, that's that's not necessarily beneficial to the human being, and that that conflicts with a Western idea, which is the Western idea of rationality, the sort of Kantian idea that's that's influenced most academics is as most academia has been that we decide on what's best for ourselves and we do what's best for ourselves. So when when we tried to reconcile the actual behavior of people with this template of what's best for themselves, we most often come up with, with some sort of a disparity. And we're now finding and, and discovering that that's emotionally driven. Now, there's, there's been some discoveries in neuroscience that have, have helped us bridge that gap or help us actually, in a sense, prove that that exists. And uh, that's because... Um, functional uh, mag- magnetic imaging and, and uh, other methods of, of actually seeing brain activity have, have become less expensive so, and more accessible to researchers. So people are able to now uh, see uh, how our emotions uh, change, not just our, our uh, pulse, not just our uh, dilating our pupils, not, not just in, in our biological processes, but also in our neural processes. And, it's, and, and so that has has while someone's undertaking an activity. And so that has actually put some support to the idea that we are not simply uh, cerebral creatures and we're not simply creatures that evaluate information and make a decision and then spit it out. Um, and, and of course, the, the response initially in the economics, let's say the, the um, ivory tower response to, to uh, behavioral economics was, well, you know, not everyone is of the same intelligence. You know, the 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 economic model is not saying that that people will all, will always make perfect decisions. They're making the, the the best decisions that they can, the decisions that are best available to them. Well, even that we've we've found to not necessarily be true, and we we found evidence that actually um, uh, Keith uh, Stanovich, who's now emeritus from one of the universities out in, in uh, San Diego, he. Uh, uh, he's worked at several, so I, I just mentioned, just put it in, in a group. Uh, he, he and some co-authors found uh, a, a few years ago that actually people with higher IQs tend to be subject, more subject to certain biases than people with more on, on what we would say are the average in terms of IQs. And wow. in particular, for example, people that have high IQs are, are very susceptible to confirmation bias. They, they tend to look for information that supports their opinion much more often than, let's say, your average person. And um, I, I think that actually fits, uh, again, a lot of what we saw in, in the last year, where, where you have people that uh, they could become completely frustrated with the activities of the mass of, of individuals and, and not actually seeing, in many cases, the forest for the trees. And I think it, it came from them, they would say, well, you see, you know, the, the, the news has said this, or, or, you know, science told us this. But in fact, you know, I think very often they selectively chose information that they would find, often selectively picking up things on social media and saying, see, you know, this is reality. And, uh, and, and, and it's not to say that that person was stupid. It's quite the opposite. Uh, very often, as I said, someone who's, who's extremely bright can, and it doesn't feel comfortable to often open your perspective to to a new way of thinking when, when your mental model has been something that for you has worked so well. And that's, that's, that's something that I, I find quite exciting about, about the field. I often believe that 
that my decisions are run through through a correct analytical perspective, right? I know my my all of my preferences, and I I know which path do I want to choose. But at the end of the day, it's really interesting to see that at the at the foundations of my decisions, there's an emotion, there's there's this desire to to think on putting put words into into these emotions, right? And put like actions to these emotions. Right. So that's very very interesting. And right. now going into what you're mentioning in in your work as a in the field of risk, which is very interesting. How does risk and you mentioned a couple of 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 words that I think most people associate when they think of risk, which is emotions like fear, risk, aversion. So how do you think that risk in and of itself plays a, a, a role in our lives? In fact, I think risk, risk-taking is the most fundamental part of our, let's say, emotional uh, uh, mechanism that can lead to biases. And I think that's for the very reasons you, you mentioned. Um, when I have to make a decision, I'm almost always doing, making that decision amidst uh, incomplete information, right? E- even if I'm solving a mathematics problem, then it, it depends upon the context in, in which I'm solving that problem. So if it's two plus two and you know, I come to the decision of saying, well, it's going to be four, and I write that down, then I have to ask myself, what is the person, or I might be asking myself, what is the person that has given me this problem expecting me to write down, right? If I write two plus two equals five, as we've seen students who want to sabotage an application for a school that they don't want, that their parents want them to go to, but they don't, um, you know, they they might do that because the context is is such that uh, it, the, the best answer for them is, is really the wrong answer. So my point is that we, we have this, this, uh, this incomplete information that we face, and in the midst of that incom- incomplete information, we gamble. Now, where loss aversion is, is a fascinating find, they, the, where, where Kaiman and Tversky, they, they're, they're, it's, it's part of their prospect theory, where they, they, what they discovered was that when we're faced with a definite loss, that is something where, where we, we feel in our hearts as though we're going to lose. Now, definite loss, again, is in, in the middle of, of incomplete information. We don't know 100% there's going to be loss, but in our minds, we're convinced that most likely we're going to lose. And we may not actually question that. I mean, this is a subconscious thing that goes on. So when we feel we're going to lose, we gamble, we double down, right? We, we, you know, so if we're, we're in, and, it, and it would explain, for example, why you might have someone who in, in the snow, it's the winter now. I mean, I know you're in Florida, but for the rest of us, we're, we're dealing with serious weather, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, so when there's ice and snow, you know, it's, it's the reason why someone might, as their, as their, their car starts to slip, they might speed up, you know, and I notice that every day when I'm, I'm, you know, on the, on the highway, I see, you know, people, they, they react to ice and, and a thick layer of of snow and ice, they react to it in ways that are, are, are kind of inexplicable. But if you look at it from the loss aversion uh, point of view, right. they, in a sense, feel like I've got to do something. So they, they gas it, right? Uh, on the other side of that theory is, is something else that's fundamental in, in driving a lot of our decision-making, which is our resistance to, to new, our resistance to things that are, that, that are, are a change. And so their, their theory predicts that 
when I'm faced, when, when I'm holding something, when there's something I feel that I have a chance of losing, but I've got it in, in hand. And that, what I've got in hand, it could be something physical. So in most of their experiments, it was something physical like money. Um, or it could be something that's psychological. It could be an idea, as we were just speaking about the, the idea that, that a, a person who's, who's very smart may feel that they, they have a, a mind full of ideas. And if they, if they dare open up to considering another pathway, another way of thinking, then that's a risk that's not worth taking because they feel it's mutually exclusive. They feel in order to, to, to explore that new pathway, they've got to give up everything that they believed in. Wow. And that's what we thought. So, so in experiments, they find people, people tend to, to require, and, and there's, there's an interesting article where a guy went around the world and created an index for different countries. But on average, people require double what they believe they have in order to, to take a gamble. Wow. Right? So if I've got a job that I'm, I'm, even if it's a job that I'm not entirely satisfied with, I was going to say if I'm satisfied with it, but even if I'm not entirely satisfied with it, you will probably still have to offer me what amounts to about double, not necessarily double salary, but double in terms of benefits, in terms of all these things, in order for me to take another job. Mm. Yeah. And, it's, and it's only part, part of the reason many recruiters are, you know, they question when someone's coming and looking for a job and they've got an existing job is because there's a, there's a sort of psychological mirroring where they, they worry that, well, maybe this person's actually already lost their job. <laughs> maybe they've been served notice at their, at their firm and it's out of loss aversion that they're actually coming and trying to apply for this job, which maybe they're over, overqualified for, or, or maybe is, is something which, which really, you know, objectively, from my point of view, would leave them, leave them worse off. The devil you know, right? devil you know. And yeah. as you were saying, that it's, it's very interesting how every, each and single one of us manages risk in a different way and how this connects into what we, we were mentioning on, on biases. And I believe that these biases that we have are run through our evolutionary code from past years. We were surviving on these biases, but now that technological advances have become so increasingly amazing and efficient. Now our evolutionary code is having time, difficult time coping with, with how stable reality has become in a sense, right? So our biases, such as having the bias of Loss aversion, for example, in a world where I'm maybe going on a limb saying that taking risks today was much easier, is much easier than in past generations, given the, the amount, huge amount of leverage you can have owning a computer and having access to yeah. internet. So what are some of the biggest blind spots you think people have when, when thinking of risk, of managing risk, and how do you think people can overcome them? It's a good question. I, I think the, the, the biggest blind spot I see, at least in, in my work, is really related to entrepreneurship. So there's two phenomena going on. On the one hand, I think prior to the startup revolution, you probably had too many consumers, right? I mean, you, you, if you went back 100 years uh, ago, and, and a marketing professor that was one of my mentors uh, alerted me to this. If you went back about 100 years ago, most people were, were actually producers, right? They, they were either farmers or, um, and that is direct producers, or they owned a business, or even if they worked for somebody else, they owned something that produced for them, right? 
now uh, we, we've gone in, we've, we moved into an era where most people are, are consumers. And it, it, we don't think we're consumers because we go and we get PhDs, we get uh, law degrees, we get MBAs and so forth. But when you think about it, those are consumption. I mean, we're consuming, we're paying somebody to pr- produce an education for us, a curriculum for us, and we get a credential. And then we use that and hopefully shop for a job, in which case we become an input to somebody else's production process. But largely, we're still a, a consumer. So we were producers. Now, now we've become consumers. And I think the startup revolution has started to reverse that a bit with a lot of people feeling that, look, you know, I haven't gotten what I need from my company. My company's, you know, I need to start working for myself and so forth and so on. But the one fallacy there is that entrepreneurship is for everyone, right? It, it, it's not for everyone. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be an Elon Musk. I mean, there are some people who are just, you know, they're geniuses at entrepreneurship. And, and I know a few, I know people, they, they just, they just love it. And, and, you know, my, my litmus test for it is, do you love the business you're in or do you love setting up business? And, and when someone tells me, well, I just really love business, then I know that they're, they're probably good at entrepreneurship. But when it's somebody that says, no, I just love doing this and I decided to make a business out of it, then I, I just warn them, be careful. You know, you might want to, you know, might want to work with someone who's, who's a good business person <laughs> who just does it because they're good in business. And so I tell a lot of, I, I meet a lot of young people who are, are, are getting they're, they're, they want to launch startups. I mentor several people from high school and college that are, they're now into startups and some tech guys. And I tell them it's, it's good for you. If, if you like what you're doing, you know, you really like it, you really like this idea. That's fine. But you might want to partner with people. How you select your partners should should come down to finding some that are actually just good at business. What it seems to me is that we're in a reality that I've previously spoken with David Sachs, who is an expert on entrepreneurship. He's written books on entrepreneurship. And it seems that we live in an age where everyone is being uh, pivoted towards becoming an entrepreneur. But it seems that the thing... The important aspect here is listening to oneself and listening to, to how one can manage risk because yeah. it's even riskier to think that, to assume that that everyone can be an entrepreneur because that leaves like a whole different game in the sense that people don't know how to, to manage it. People don't know how to, to get out of it. So it's interesting to see that when when you consult someone you you think on how can they create a an, a team where all of these aspects are intertwined and and they work together so yeah. when you're consulting a company what do you think are some of the attributes a company must have in order to become a great one um well that's it's a, it's a tough one um well i i, I would say i i think if if there's one thing that I've found companies that are, let's say, great seem to have, which which I don't often see in in companies that are that that have have uh, either um, stalled or or never quite made it to that ranks, it's 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 a a, a very strategic minded leadership. I mean, a genuinely strategic minded leadership, which which in many ways brings us back to risk. I mean. It's like the navigator that you would have in the cockpit of of a commercial commercial airline, and, and 
uh, or 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 in in a bomber if uh, <laughs> if you were at war. It's it's someone that's that's critical in terms of being able to point out you know where the where the, the what the landscape is like you know where are the the tailwinds that can get us there faster where are the things that the flocks of birds that we need to avoid uh, uh, hitting and those kinds of things and i think and that's risk so that that those tools allow us to navigate if if you could give advice to your younger self like you're starting out you you want to start a company you want to know more about your own ventures as a as an individual here what would you say to yourself as your concluding remarks? Uh, yeah, it's 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 difficult. Um, you know, I, I I on the one hand, I would I would say like navigating the path that that I've navigated. Um, the one thing that that I would say for myself that I've learned from hard experience is just take every opportunity, right? So so when something's come by, I don't look it in the face and say, oh, you know, no, it's, it's bad. Like you asked me to, to be on your, your show. I, I, I go for that. If I have the time and it doesn't look like something that's, that's negative or something like that, I'll, I'll go for it. And, and that's, that's been something. And, and I found that that has, has always served me well, but I would say if, if I could go back and kind of knowing what, what I know now, I think my, my attitude towards towards uh, my career would have been different. First, I think I uh, like like most people, uh, we we spend way too much time thinking about getting uh, either a credential or getting an experience or getting something to, in a sense, signal and present it to other people and say, "See, I'm qualified uh, to do this. I, you know, I can do that," and so forth and so on. And and that, that might come partly from from my having been an academic. I mean, in a, in academia, you you certainly need that. I mean, you're you're not going to become a professor at at a research university without a PhD, and you're not going to get um, viewed by a top university unless you get a PhD from a top school. So there's a certain formula that that is it's it's hard to break that formula um, to getting there. But in in just about everything else, I think the the last you know ten years, ten fifteen years has shown that. You, you can come from whatever you have, and you, as, as long as you make sure you, you know, put together a well-polished, you know, excellent product, then you should go for it. I mean, you, I, I don't think you should wait. So if, I, so if I was talking to my younger self or to a young person today, I would say, look, don't, don't wait. Don't say, oh, should I go back and get that master's degree, and then I can become this, or then I can start a business and do this. I was like, no, like, why don't you try to start it? If you find you absolutely need it, then you go and do those things. Because most of the, the, the very successful people I've, I've met um, d- don't really need, like, a, I mean, d- did Elon Musk need his Stanford MBA? I mean, you know, I'm sure Stanford loves to have that fact. But, you know, I, I've seen, I think, that question on Quora. I mean, it, there's nothing that indicates that, that, you know, he needed that experience. Um, maybe it gave him connections because he's, he's not from the U.S. And so that, you know, that could have been worth it. But I certainly don't think he needed any of that ex- experience in order to, to be where he is. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a lot to, to think on now that, that I'm embarking in, 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 you know, beginning a trajectory. And I thank you for, for your advice to, to your younger self, which I will gladly adopt for me as well. Thank you so much. And Tony, I really, really appreciated the, our conversation. 
I do look forward on repeating this on the future because there's just plenty of, of ideas that you, you, you threw by me and I really want to get into that. So I look forward to, to seeing yeah. you in the future. Hopefully when everything comes, stabilizes and risk becomes less of a negative word in a risky world with COVID, we can see each other. So thank you for joining me again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thank thanks for tuning in for this edition of Through Conversations podcast. If you find this episode interesting, don't miss out on new conversations and subscribe to the podcast at any podcast feed you use and leave me a review. Also, consider sharing it with someone you think can enjoy this episode. Our new awesome music is by Joe Lyle. More info can be found at joeliledrums.com. Hosted and produced by Alex Levy.